New Hampshire residents received a deep-faked call impersonating President Biden right before the primary vote Tuesday. Silicon Valley darling Brex cuts 20% of its staff, and will the U.S.'s efforts to build AI infrastructure lead to an AI industrial complex? I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. Hey, real quick before we get into the news, I just wanted to say that Venture Daily is back. You may have noticed our absence this past month. Our new company called Demo Day has been working on some really cool stuff that we can't wait to announce very soon. The following is three of the most important stories in venture capital this week. Next week, we'll get back to our regularly scheduled daily programming. All right, here's the news. On Monday, New Hampshire's Attorney General John Fermella announced the state had begun investigations into a report of possible voter suppression. Residents of New Hampshire reported to have received phone calls from an artificially generated voice mimicking Joe Biden, asking voters to not participate in the primaries. Here's a selected clip from that recording. We know the value of voting Democratic when our votes count. It's important that you save your vote for the November election. According to researchers, the rise of audio deepfakes that mimic politicians will continue to spread as cases have already occurred in the UK, India, Nigeria, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Slovakia. In an interview with Hannah Murphy from the Financial Times, Henry Adger, an expert on deepfakes, says the scary part about audio deepfakes is that, quote, there's much less awareness about how audio material can be manipulated, unquote. Social media platforms also struggle with identifying and regulating audio deepfakes. Meta bans manipulated videos but does not enforce bans on deepfaked audio. TikTok is finding ways to label audio content that is manipulated but has not been able to find a long-term solution. So, will we see deepfakes play a real role in upcoming elections leading to actual voter suppression? For more on that, I spoke with Bradley Tusk. Hi, I'm Bradley Tusk. I'm the CEO of Tusk Venture Partners. Bradley, as the volume and quality of deepfakes grow, do you think the demand for AI content detector tech that can identify when content is AI generated will grow? Is it a good bet to invest in startups that make this tech? Yeah, look, absolutely, because pe- people are going to need and want it. But I, I, I do think, and obviously you call me because I'm the regulatory guy, but there's probably even a, a broader solution here that needs to happen, which is the platforms need to be responsible for identifying what's real and what's fake. Now, not every single piece of content is disseminated on YouTube or Instagram or Snap or whatever it is, but a lot of it is. And they should be legally liable if they don't deem the content correctly. And, you know, some might say, well, you know, they they don't know either. If they don't know, then you know what? Don't post it, right? Don't let it go up. Um, But the only way that they would limit the content and limit the risk uh, is if they have legal liability for getting it wrong. And uh, that needs to be applied to them. Even if the general public becomes more aware of AI content detector technology, do you think the average person will care to take the time to fact check if the content they see on social media is AI generated? Do you think fact checking will ever become a priority in our culture? No, never, never. Uh, So I think that all we can do is effectively rely on the medium to do some of it for us. And I think that the medium, whatever it is, isn't going to do it. Uh, unless they absolutely have to. So, you know, in, in traditional news media, uh, when Fox News defamed Dominion, they got sued and had to spend $800 million to settle the lawsuit. Um, but if, you know, when Twitter reposted all the same claims, they went away scot-free. So, you know, we, we give 
way too much legal protection to the platforms for content posted by users. Uh, and that could be anything from, you know, toxic defamatory content from about one person to another or deep fakes. And, and we've got to take away that protection and put it back on them to have to get it right because that's the only way it's ever going to happen. Last question, Bradley. Do you think the danger of deep fakes is overblown in the media? Can we expect to actually face consequential misinformation and voter suppression caused by audio and video deepfakes, in your opinion? Look, I, I don't think in the 2024 election there's going to be a ton of that. I think there will be things like we saw where someone does Biden's voice and, and gives out misinformation about the, the time or uh, status of an election. Um, so, no, I, I think the media is really into this topic and will probably take every little example and run with it. But overall, look, the, the, the risk is real. And the only way that we're going to prevent it is not by being a better society or better people or even better tech. It's by creating better rules around it. Bradley, always grabbing me on the show, man. Thanks for taking the time. Of course. On Tuesday, fintech startup Brex announced layoffs of 282 employees, about 20% of its staff. The Decacorn, meaning a private company valued at over $10 billion, is reported to be facing stalled growth and high burn as 2024 begins. In addition to the layoffs, Brex also shared that COO Michael Tannenbaum and CTO Cosman Nicolescu will be stepping away from their roles. Tannenbaum will become a board member and Nicolescu will be an advisor. Brex's co-founder and co-CEO Pedro Franceschi wrote to employees stating that the company's comp structure is now, quote, emphasizing long-term thinking and ownership over short-term gains. And this isn't Brex's first time announcing a large layoff, however. A company restructure in October of 2022 led to 136 employees being let go, more than 10% of staff. Related to this most recent slew of layoffs could be the reported $17 million a month Brex burned in Q4 of 2023. The information reports that the company claimed to only have enough cash to last through March of 2026. A spokesperson for Brex disputes this, however, telling TechCrunch that the company's cash runway is actually now four years and that, quote, Cherry-picking certain months for financial burn is not the correct way to look at burn. For more on the Brex burn rate and layoff news, I spoke with Ansaf Karim. Jackson, good to uh, be back on the pod. This is Ansaf Karim at Latitude Capital. Ansaf, it's reported that Brex burned $17 million a month in the fourth quarter of 2023. Is it common for fintech companies like Brex to have this high of burn, or is this a worrying outlier? Look, I'd say every company needs to be treated as its own uh, individual company. And within that, even fintech does generally have a higher you know, expense profile than, let's say, a traditional software company due to payment infrastructure and other related costs. I will say, you know, at an absolute level, obviously, the 70 million seems like a big number, but it's hard to really understand that number without a broader context around the company profile, revenue, scale, cost per user, et cetera. Um, but I will say that uh, generally speaking, obviously this has caught uh, the eyes of a lot of folks in the ecosystem. And But I think it's just another telling sign of how companies are paying more and more attention to their expense profile as they think about getting to a more high efficiency state. In a note to Brex employees, co-founder and co-CEO Pedro Franceschi wrote that the company is now emphasizing long-term thinking and ownership over short-term gains in its comp structure. What do you think that means? Yeah, look, I think this is uh, really a lot of what's happening right now with many growth companies and similar-sized companies as Breck who came to age in an era of hyper-growth or growth at all, at all costs to now an era where growth is also needs to be balanced with high efficiency. And I think in that transition, there's a lot of pain that goes along with that, um, not only in terms of, obviously, the unfortunate 
cost-cutting measures that have to happen, but also prioritization around what are the types of products that make sense for the company to double down in, what are things that might be ancillary. You saw Brex, you know, I think last year or earlier this year, um, made comments about picking customers who were just higher profile in terms of potential profit versus those who might be less so. And so I think this is just a broader trend that we're seeing in many of these growth companies that are really focused on how do we make sure that we've got enough runway to get to our next major milestone, whether that be a future funding round, an IPO, an exit, um, and in doing so are just having to make a lot of tough decisions uh, to be able to balance that hyper-growth scale that they've been used to with trying to grow more efficiently. Last question on Saf. A Brex company spokesperson told TechCrunch, We grew our revenue 35% plus in 2023, while gross profits increased by 75%. This reduction in force puts us on a clear path towards profitability. She added, Brex's financial plan is to be well above cash flow positive with the current cash we have, which calls for around four years of runway. Plus, cherry-picking certain amounts for financial burn is not the correct way to look at burn. Onsoff, are the reports of Brex's stalled growth overstated because the misleading numbers that are, quote, cherry-picked? Well, you know, I'm obviously not an insider in the company, nor, you know, I think we have to, to some degree, take management at their uh, word when they make public statements like this. Uh, I do believe that, uh, generally speaking, the, the cost measures that they've taken right now likely are towards the path of increasing their own runway. And so whether that's four years, three years, five years, um, it's, it's hard to know from the outside, but I do believe that whatever they were doing right now in terms of some of this reduction was probably in light of the burn profile that you mentioned at the beginning of the pod and trying to make sure that they can continue to guide the company towards a path for a successful IPO. And so, again, it's hard to know whether who's cherry-picking what, but I would say that we would take uh, their actions uh, speak louder than their words in terms of what they're probably trying to do here in terms of extending runway. That was Ansaf Kareem, founder and managing partner at Latitude Capital. Great to get your insights as always, Ansaf. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you, Jackson. The AI revolution relies on computing power, and a lot of it. Large language models get that computing power from microchips powered by semiconductors. The tech is complicated and very expensive to make, and today, Taiwan produces over 60% of the world's semiconductors, and over 90% of the advanced semiconductors. Naturally, this concentration of manufacturing has created supply chain bottlenecks that are slowing the distribution of chips to top bidders around the world. Those top bidders include Meta, OpenAI, and Microsoft. Last week, Mark Zuckerberg announced that Meta purchased 340,000 H100 GPUs from NVIDIA, the world's leading AI computing company that, you guessed it, relies on Taiwan's TSMC to build 90% of its chips. And there's growing fear that dependence on Taiwan to buttress the AI revolution is becoming increasingly risky. The threat of an invasion from China is not out of the question and would very likely halt the production and delivery of Taiwan's chips. And the U.S. wants to reduce this dependence. America's solution is creating factories that design semiconductor chips on U.S. soil, and the plans have already begun. Taiwan's biggest chip provider, TSMC, is building two factories in Arizona, a project that will cost over $40 billion. The original plan was for the factories to be operational by 2026, but TSMC Chairman Mark Liu has announced the project is delayed until at least 2027 or 2028 due to labor and licensing issues. While many American building projects are experiencing similar delays to the Arizona factories, over $200 billion in total has been committed by many investors to support new chip manufacturing infrastructure across the country. In November, Global Wafer, another Taiwan-based chipmaker, began building a $5 billion plant in Sherman, Texas. The Biden administration has also announced funding for 25 national AI research institutes. 
As the U.S. government gets more involved in supporting American companies to build the AI infrastructure necessary to meet the growing demand for chip tech in the U.S. and around the world, there's also a question that has arisen. Will this lead to a new problem for the U.S., what has been coined the AI industrial complex? To figure that out, I spoke with Doug Clinton. I am Doug Clinton, a managing partner and founder at Deepwater Asset Management. Doug, why does the U.S. lack suitable AI infrastructure, and why can't enough advanced microprocessors be made here in the U.S. today? It's a matter of time until that problem solves itself, in my view. I mean, obviously, we know TSM is building new fabs in uh, Arizona. We have Intel building fabs in the Midwest. Um, I think the reason that we haven't had it here is because historically, you know, semiconductor fabrication talent, the really, I think, hardware manufacturing talent, has been localized in Taiwan. Um, TSM is the global leader. They have, uh, I think, built probably one of the most incredible companies in the world. And we talk a lot about the Mag 7 and how uh, amazing those companies are, but without TSM, you know, a lot of the Mag 7 companies wouldn't be able to deliver the incredible products that they do, like the iPhone, you know, like NVIDIA's H100 chips. Um, and I think it's a testament to TSM in terms of the culture they've built, the kind of employees that they've focused on hiring, extreme technical talent um, that knows how to make semiconductors, unlike anybody else anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, so that's really what the gap is. And I think that they, along with others, are trying to diversify their supply chain for obvious reasons. Um, but it's going to take time. I think it will happen. But it's, it is just really, I think, a matter of timing. How long will it take for the world to be less dependent on Taiwan's chip factories? I think if you think about like maybe the, the timing that some of these companies have talked about in terms of getting these fabs up and running, if I remember correctly, I think the Arizona fab um, TSM has talked about is slated to be online late next year. And then I think delivering product in 26. So, you know, you think about these as kind of two to three year probably build uh, projects. Um, if we scale that out and you also think about all the capex, you know, billions of dollars that have to go into building these fabs, I mean, I think you could envision a world where maybe 10 years from now, half of the advanced chips in the world are built outside of Taiwan. If we wanted to get really aggressive, maybe we could get above that 50% hurdle. And right now it's, it's 90 plus in Taiwan. So that would be a big change. But I do think we're kind of talking about a time scale like that. You know, it probably is something like a decade to make a really big dent unless we have some massive, massive capital infusion, um, probably hundreds of billions of dollars that would accelerate that. Last question, Doug. Do you worry about the emergence of the AI industrial complex as individual companies are buying up all available AI processing power and promising to develop networks of chip factories? Do you think the U.S.'s emphasis on artificial intelligence will give chip manufacturers undue influence over government policy, which will lead to an AI industrial complex? Not necessarily. I mean, I think this is sort of a natural market function in a way, right? Like there is a scarce resource that certain players in the market have identified. That scarce resource is these advanced AI chips. Um, and so you have hyperscalers, you have Meta, right, spending maybe close to $10 billion this year on NVIDIA chips. Um, I think that they're seeing an opportunity in the market. I don't think that their intent is to have undue control over government policy. I think their intent is that they say, look, like we see a huge opportunity 
in AI. We're building products around AI, and we need access to this compute power to deliver those products to our customers. Um, so I think it's very much market driven. I think it's customer driven. Could there be a byproduct where maybe there is some influence on the government? Sure. I mean, you could have said that looking back on the internet 25 years ago. Um, but I think the market will be dynamic, and and I don't think that's a big issue right now. I think we need to figure out the supply chain more, get more diversity in in the chips away from Taiwan. That to me is more important than uh, maybe domestic influence on government policy. That was Doug Clinton, co-founder and managing partner at Deepwater Asset Management. Thanks for the time, Doug. Talk soon. Thanks, Jackson. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all next week.